Good morning. Our children are dismissed for their lesson. And if you're a guest, your children are welcome to join them. You're welcome to go back with them, meet our workers, see uh, the classroom that they meet in. And if you have any questions, just ask openly and, and then come back and join us. This morning we will finish our current sermon series, The Big Picture of the Bible. And here's what we've learned, at least here's what I hope we've learned through this series, and that is uh, we first looked at Genesis 1 through 4 and we answered the question from perfect creation, where God said everything was good, what went wrong? And something is wrong. Today there are more than 45 armed conflicts currently taking place in the Middle East and North Africa and Europe. Open up any major news headline and you'll see that something is wrong. And then we looked at Romans chapter 1 through 4 and we we tried to seek for the answer and found the answer of what God did about it. Thankfully, our sovereign, our wise, our gracious Savior had a plan from before the foundation of the world, which means that what went wrong did not surprise him. What went wrong was not outside of his plan from even before the foundations of the earth. The fall, the death, the curse, the violence, the sorrow did not take God by surprise. And then this morning we're going to look at Revelation 21. How is it all going to end? And so we of all people have hope. And that's why we we actually chose to focus on this on The Sunday as we enter into Thanksgiving week, this is one of the many reasons that we have to give God thanks. We are able to take a glimpse at how it ends, or at least how the end of the story is the beginning of an even better story. Before we turn to Revelation 21, I want you to open your scriptures to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. Open it up on your mobile device or your copy of the scriptures. If you don't have one, you should find one in the seat uh, underneath you. There's a table of contents if you have no idea where 1 Thessalonians is. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want you to see three specific commands as it really relates to life in the church, life in general, and every week, but specifically this week as we focus on Thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Specifically then for for the Thessalonian church, then specifically for us as Highlands, and also specifically for us as individuals. Three all-inclusive words. Look at that. Always, without stopping, without ceasing, and all. Now we reason if it said some or even most, we could work with that. But all? All circumstances? Three closely connected imperatives or commands. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And these are followed by that description, these are God's will for you. 
You want to know what God's will is for your life? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That's what marks God's gathered people when they worship Him. First, with regard to the command to rejoice always, it's interesting that it doesn't say, be joyful always. You ever met the person that tries to be that? Like, even when things are going extremely wrong, there's almost this plastic, hollow, everything is perfect all the time. I am so thankful it doesn't say, to be joyful always. But an active expression of it. Do you know that you can rejoice without feeling happy? That's an emotion. That's the caboose of the train. The command is rejoice. And so we are commanded to actually express this rejoicing to God even when our hearts may be grieving and sorrowful and in pain. The reason we can do that is because of God's wisdom, because of the transforming effect of trials, because of our future hope. Thus, the translation, rejoice. It's an action and an attitude, and that's different than be joyful or be happy. And try not to hum Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy Now. Not bad advice, but that's not what 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is saying. Second, with regard to the command to pray without ceasing, a lot of people stumble over this. Like, how can I always be praying? If I'm, if I'm at a luncheon or I'm talking with someone, how can I actually be praying in that moment when I'm trying to have a conversation? And that's not what it's asking you to do. What it is saying is to have a heart posture of prayer continually. What it's saying is for you to focus on talking with God rather than complaining about your circumstances. It really is an emphasis of what or who we are fixating on. We either choose to focus on what we can or can't control, what we do or don't have, or past failures and successes, or the present moment as it shapes the future. Praying without ceasing is communicating with God and having a heart posture that says, I am going to focus on the things I can influence, the present moment, with a thankfulness for what I do have. Because if we focus on what we can't control, either a person or a situation, what will that do? It will create anger and frustration and bitterness and anxiety because you cannot control that person or that circumstance. So pray. Communicate with God and have an influence in the sphere that you're living in now. Do you know what will happen if you focus on past failures and regrets? And maybe those past failures are yesterday. What it will do is it will create shame because you're stuck in the negative and you forget that the gospel frees you from being tethered to those failures. The gospel frees you so that you don't have to be confined or defined by your past. 
The gospel gives you a fresh start. And if you focus on what you don't have, that will breed discontentment and envy because you're fixated on a perceived emptiness or lack rather than what you do have. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. When you do that, you'll, you'll notice the, the actual effect of Colossians 3.1 that says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind on things that are above so you can rejoice always. Set your mind on things that are above so you will be praying without ceasing. And then third, with regard to give thanks in all circumstances. I've always struggled with that one until I realized that little word, in. Not all, yes, give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. God's not asking you to give thanks for the evil that touches your family or the evil that is in the world. But he is inviting you to give thanks in all those circumstances because of what he is doing. Because we do not know all that God is doing. Like Joseph, it may take years for you to finally be able to say this. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he's speaking to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I don't know what is touching your life negatively right now, or in a painful way, or what unexpected circumstance sort of you know, repelled down into your life this year. But I do know this, we serve a wise and sovereign God who intends to use it for good and not for evil. Turn to Revelation 21. We're going to springboard from those three commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstance to find out why we can do those three things. And it's where our hope lies. Now, John did not write the book of Revelation to confuse you or to provide sensational imagery to conjure up fear. He didn't even really provide Revelation as a specific, detailed, eschatological roadmap. You know what he wrote it for? He wrote it for seven churches that were suffering and struggling. He wrote Revelation not so that we could argue about all the different abstract images. He wrote this book to provide the church hope. Hope amidst conflict. Hope amidst suffering. A living hope. Do you know I need the hope of heaven? I visited with people this past week for hours at a time that needed the hope of of heaven, the hope of what's next, the confidence of knowing that when I breathe my last breath, to know when that door swings what lies on the other side of that door, that's why John is writing. I want you to look at Revelation 21, and two things happen to John. First, John sees something. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw 
the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The first thing John sees is something new. He is on the island of Patmos. He's a prisoner there for the word of God. And he sees a new earth where there are no prisons. He sees a new earth where there are no no tormentors. And what John sees is not just new in time, but in kind. It's another kind of everything good we may experience here. It's a whole other kind of earth. It's not a remodel or a new addition. Because verse 1 says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The second thing that happens to John is he hears something. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, when John sees a new earth and a new heaven and a new city, it's new in time and in kind. This new place will have none of those things. Now, the historical text, who was John writing to? Again, if you go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, he's writing to seven churches that would now exist in modern-day Turkey. They were about to suffer even more than they were already suffering. The Roman emperor Domitian unleashed wide-scale persecution against Christians, unlike, unlike had not even been known under Nero. Their homes were taken away and plundered. They were thrown in the arenas to wild beasts. They were impaled on stakes. They were covered with pitch and lit like candles. And they were crucified by hundreds, and some historians say by thousands, right by the roadway as an announcement that this is what happens when you, when you profess to be a Christian. And what did John give them? Those who were about to suffer, those who were about to be imprisoned, those who were about to be thrown into pits, those who were about to be sawn in half, you know what he gave to them? He gave to them the hope of what's next. The hope of how it ends. The hope of a new heaven and a new earth and a new city of God where God's dwelling would come down and be with them. And so when they heard these words, there's going to be no more pain and no more crying and no more death. It gave them the boldness to face those persecutions because of that hope within their heart. Listen, the promise of a new place would only resonate with us if certain things did not exist. Tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me ask you, when is the last time you cried? Do you remember why you cried? I think this morning we saw an illustration of the times when you cry because the emotion of truth hits you differently. You're hearing it in a different environment. But most of our crying hasn't been that, has it? 
physical or emotional pain, overwhelmed, stressed out, angry, frustration about a situation you can't control, an unexpected life event. I still remember as a 12-year-old moving from rural Pennsylvania to South Florida, which felt like a new country. I remember we had to leave, leave my German shepherd Thor in Pennsylvania because we weren't even sure at the time he could handle the heat. I remember we left my cousins, my best friend Michael Oliver, my little league baseball team, and my grandparents and the park across their street. I remember the night after we loaded the moving trucks, going up and sleeping on a sleeping bag on a hardwood floor and just crying. When's the last time? That's not the last time I've cried. I cried when I was 13, too. (laughs) Perhaps what causes the most tears and deepest pain is what John mentions next. And death shall be no more. When is the last time you lost someone you loved? What's the last funeral you attended? The sting and the emptiness you felt, perhaps still feel, the memories that are still bittersweet, that picture you just can't look at for long, the unexpected sadness that still washes over you like a wave. John sees a new place. And there's no death. Not even the death of a pet. You know what else is removed? The lingering effects of death and separation. John says, neither. I mean, it's not even just that death is no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We can hardly even understand and grasp what John is is putting forward here. Do you know that this promise... This truth worked for those facing intense persecution and immeasurable suffering. You have historians, plural, telling us how Christians died. Not just how the method, but but the attitude and the spirit where they would say, Christians, they die differently. They die well. They sang hymns while the beasts tore them apart. They forgave their tormentors. Like Jesus, before, as he was being crucified, and like Stephen, as he was being stoned. They were sawed in half, but they faced death with peace. This is what caused Tertullian. He was a second century church father who lived in Carthage, North Africa, when persecution there of Christians was sort of at its apex. And he coined the term, the blood of Christians is seed. And later on it was Augustine, I think, who interpreted that as the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what they meant is the more they were slaughtered and persecuted and killed, the faster the church grew. How do you explain that? Because the hope of this place is true. There is a a supernatural hope in the hearts given to us by the Holy Spirit that what John saw is true. A matter of fact, Tertullian, in writing, in addressing the Roman Empire, said this, We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. 
The martyrs themselves were a revelation to a pagan world. Arthur Pearson writes of Christian martyrdom as part of God's plan. He says, these are but parts of God's ways. The pages of the century's history are here and there written in blood, but even the blood has a golden luster. Martyrs there have been, but every one of these deaths has been like seed, which falls into the ground to die that it may bring forth fruit. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Do you know John himself saw this? He saw a disturbing vision in Revelation 17.6. Listen to what he says. I saw the woman. For him at that time, probably the Roman Empire, but also in the future, another time, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But the more the Christians were killed, the faster Christianity spread because it was real. Tim Keller said this, human beings are absolutely hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled about what you believe about your future. And do you know the New Testament saints had these promises in the Old Testament? Isaiah says this in Isaiah 43:19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, almost like a small plant starting to come out of the ground. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And it's going to grow large. And you see that in the Gospels and you see that in Revelation. And then in Isaiah 65, 17, he says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What about all that trauma? What about that abuse? What about those scars? They will not be remembered or come into mind. It's something new. You know the only extended description of heaven that we have in the Bible is Revelation 21.1 to 22.5. And I want to look at several things God says for our encouragement in reference to a new creation. Notice the first thing God says. Look at chapter 21, verse 5. He says, and by the way, now you have, and this doesn't happen often in the book of Revelation, you actually have the voice of God personally. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. So there's a continuity. It is still the earth, 21, verse 1. And there is a discontinuity between the old and the new with the old earth passing away. It's kind of like a new car is noticeable. And you can take an old car and get it detailed really well, but when you get in, you still realize it's what? An old car that's detailed really well. And when you get into a new car, and by the way, you can even buy one of those new car, you know, like mirror hanger scents. And it's not the same thing. But when you get into a new car, there's something fresh about it. It's like carpet. Deep, clean carpet is not the same as new carpet. Why? Because your dog and cat's pet stains are still in the pad underneath. And you can almost smell that when they clean it, even though they they, they promise they can get all that up. There is an odor and feel and smell and look to new carpet. This is a new earth. 
And it's almost as if the heaven... Remember, John saw the, the new city of God coming down out of heaven, and it's almost as if this new city in this new heaven comes down to this new earth, and you have this whole new sort of dimension. God says he's making all things new. Notice the second thing God says in verse 6. It is done. You're at the second to last chapter of your Bible. Of 66 books, you're at the second to last chapter. And what John is seeing and hearing is God saying, you know what, this is as good as if it's already done. You can trust in it, you can place your confidence in it, you can believe it. It is done. And then, he, and then he feels it with this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And that's really a reference just to the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. The Alpha and the Omega. In English, he would, he would say, I am the A and the Z. And everything in between. Matter of fact, he interprets what, what this means by then adding the beginning and the end, and, and that is further interpreted in Revelation 1.17 and 2.8 as the first and the last. He's the originator and the completer of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And I love what he says in, in, in chapter 1, verse 8. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So where are you at? on that sort of divine timeline? Where are your circumstances at? Where are your emotions at? Where are your hurts at? Where are your griefs at? Because God is here right now, and he's been in the past, and he's there in the future. In the last chapter, we will be told in Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is in complete control over history and current events and the future as if it's already done. Notice the third thing God says. And it really is a picture of the gospel. Look at verse uh, 6, halfway through. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In the midst of all these things that God is saying and that John is hearing, you see here the gospel. See, John wrote Revelation, but John also wrote a gospel, the gospel according to John. And in chapter 4, he records a confrontation with Jesus. And you remember the Samaritan woman. The disciples didn't even want to go through Samaria. And here Jesus is breaking down gender barriers and racial barriers and class barriers because she had a reputation for sinning. Of course, he asks her for a cup of water. That was by design. That was more than just because Jesus was thirsty. It's going to become an illustration. And she says, you have nothing to draw it with. And so, of course, he asks her, but then he tells her this in John 4.14. 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Well, what, what kind of water does that? Jesus will answer that. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to, here's the answer, eternal life. Is your soul thirsty this morning? 
the only thing that can quench that is the water of life that Jesus gives to you. And here in the second to last chapter, when there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new city and there's this beautiful promise, God Himself says, Are you thirsty? I have water for you that can quench your soul. This imagery is drawn, beautiful imagery is drawn again from what is called the Gospel of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, listen to the invitation. This is tucked all the way back in one of the prophetical books. Come, there's an invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And I love, I love what Isaiah adds. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, he who has no money, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? See, that's what God's offering through the gospel. Satisfaction. Abundant life. The forgiveness of sins. Is your soul thirsty? I love the, the, the adverb freely here in Revelation 22. I'm going to give to you the water of life freely. Now notice the fourth thing God says. Revelation 21 verse 7. The second part. I will be his God and he will be my... What's the next word? He will be my what? Son. Son. I am a son, I am a father to three sons, and I understand what a loving relationship between a father and a child can look like even imperfectly. After I have been away for some time, or even like this past year overseas for seven months, and I've not seen my children, sons and daughters, that's what starts to occupy your mind when you book your tickets when you start the long flight home and you start to imagine the first embrace. And it's, totally, it's a totally different relationship than not really having been able to use English much and seeing the customs agent at the Denver International Airport. You're kind of happy to see him too, but it's nothing like a father and a child. Last weekend I officiated a wedding in California for my son's best friend, who they were Navy divers together, and now his friend just became a federal agent, and he invited me to officiate his wedding. He's been with us on several occasions here at Highlands. Beautiful venue in Temecula, California. And, and as we were driving and getting on the plane and renting the car and getting caught in that famous California traffic that took two and a half hours instead of 57 minutes, all the way up from San Diego to Temecula, there was one thing on my mind. And it wasn't the wedding. There was a son there who I hadn't seen in 14 months. And we parked the car, and I saw we missed the rehearsal because of the traffic, and I saw the remaining wedding party down there waiting, and I saw Joshua. And I made a beeline I mean, other people were trying to say hi to me. I don't even remember it. It's like a blur. And we made a beeline, and my little six-foot-three massive son hugs me like I'm his son, right? Here, Dad. 
and held on to me for 45 seconds to a minute. You know what God says? I will be his God and he will be my son. It's not just that there's a new place without death and without mourning, without tears. You have a heavenly father who's waiting because he hasn't seen you to embrace you. And the word sons here does not eliminate daughters. There's an inheritance idea here. It is sons and daughters, but the daughters have the same right of inheritance as sons. So not only do you get the father's embrace, you as daughters also get the full inheritance that a firstborn son would get because you two are in Christ just as much as anyone else. I do not claim to know what the new heaven and the new earth and the new garden city will look like outside of what we have in Scripture. But I know that truth brings encouragement and hope. And so just before I invite the music team forward, I want to tell you why there is hope in this and why we can rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances Relational, financial, health. Because this place will be better than any of us can imagine or write a song about or paint a picture about or write a book about. Because every description we have is something we already know. Beautiful gardens and golden gates and food. It's probably one of my favorites. But we don't understand what those things are going to be like in a new place where God dwells with us. I know this, you will be joyful. Not just rejoicing, you will be happy. And maybe you haven't sensed happiness in years. That emotional burden you carry, the discouragement that enslaves you, the darkness that oppresses you, the grief that won't go away, your desire to escape and run, gone. Because it is a new place. I know this, you will be safe. There will be no thieves, no abusers, no kidnappers, no one to molest, no one to hurt, no one to accuse, to manipulate, to intimidate, to cause fear, no razor wire on top of walls, no security cameras, no guard dogs, no hospitals. You will be safe. I know you will be content. No raging desire, no chaos in your heart, no affliction of the mind, no unsatisfied longing, no emptiness, no disappointment, no doubts. No wonder they call it heaven. I know you will be at peace with no concerns and no restlessness of mind and no high blood pressure and no fat shaming and no conscience condemning and no comparing kids or looks or churches or anything. And I know... Finally, that you will know what love is. True, unconditional, fully accepting love. And for some of you, maybe perhaps in the, for, for the first time in your life. And no crying, no pain, no death. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 42.9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare... Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Do you want to know how to get there? Last verse. Jesus said this. Because even his disciples said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we get there? 
a great question. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. See, there is no heaven without the Father. And there is no abundant life without Jesus. And he is the way to get there. So, if you believe in that, just trust in Jesus. Have confidence that he died on the cross for your sins. And by simple faith, believe. And you have every reason this week to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm going to invite our music team forward. Once they're in place, I will pray. We are going to sing a hymn called Hymn of Heaven. And I want us to sing this from our heart. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord.